Hello, everyone. Again, welcome to another edition of the Pod. This is the podcast for the Sports and Entertainment Risk Management Alliance. I am the founder and CEO of Surma, Rich Lenkov, and I am also the host of the Pod. And we're very honored to have a um, very special guest today from Early Sullivan. Brian Sullivan is an attorney in Los Angeles. You've seen him quoted in Hollywood Reporter, lots of other media talking about Film productions uh, in the wake of the Rust shooting. Brian, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So, of course, we'll deal with the latest news, uh, that being the fact that Alec Baldwin was charged a few days ago. But I want to get into uh, a little bit detail about sort of what led up to um, this tragedy and specifically how the entity was formed and why the production formed this entity and how... They did so partially to shield themselves from civil liability. Explain that a little bit to our listeners. Yeah, well, first of all, it's it's very, very common, including all the studios tend to have special purpose entities to shield from liability. Um, also to hold all the rights to produce a movie. And a lot of times you'll even get, you know, one entity is the master rights holder. Let's say you have a very profitable franchise You'll have a master rights holder and like just for sake of argument, take Star Wars. You'll have Force Awakens LLC, Last Jedi LLC, Rise of Skywalker LLC to produce each of those movies and to distribute it so that the rights are protected and can't be uh, obtained by anybody else in a lawsuit due to any incident that may occur in production, that may occur with the rights to a script for a single movie. Uh, but primarily it's done um, as a liability shield uh, to protect the higher-ups and, and uh, the um, individuals involved in the production. Now, that's pretty standard, as you mentioned. And uh, how did that affect the litigation, the civil litigation involved in this case? We know that last fall, uh, one of the lawsuits that being brought by uh, Matthew Hutchins, the surviving widower of Helena Hutchins, who was shot and killed during the productions, he settled his civil lawsuit uh, and in the process of doing so became an EP on the production. So how did the way that this was for, how did the way that this production was formed uh, affect how the civil case ended? Well, it, it, it could also be um, there was no money in the entity. They just, you always just put enough money in there to produce the movie. And then uh, on the outside, even if you can pierce the corporate veil, which basically means you're saying the corporation is a sham and I can go after the investors and the officers of it individually, you know, except for Alec Baldwin, I don't know who else involved has any money. And then you have insurance that would come in and likely paid the settlement. And I don't know how much that is, but it wouldn't surprise me if they just put policy limits up there and you get your money now instead of litigating for two years and waiting to get that money and then getting a judgment and having it appealed and going from there. So it might be just, I'm getting the maximum the insurance company put on the table. I can't get any money from anybody else in the production or from the production entity itself. And they're going to give me an EP credit to sweeten the settlement and to try to do some sort of like mea culpa type, sorry, this incident happened. 
Um, but how the entity was formed, it's probably just that it's limited assets. You mentioned piercing the corporate veil. That means that you, like you said, try to go after an individual rather than the corporation and try to um, assert some claim against that individual. Explain what that means in the world of uh, producing and why that is difficult to do in the grand scheme of things. So it, piercing the corporate veil is basically the people who are running the corporation didn't observe any, you're supposed to treat the corporation as an individual. So you don't pay stuff for the corporation unless you get an expense reimbursement, you have proper accounting, you actually are treating it like a company, like an individual that's doing the deal rather than the person. And a lot of times, you know, the best example I have is, is I sued a company, I pierced the corporate veil, I got the CEO because the company was basically him and a few investors he had it paying for his car, his house, all of his expenses, all off of investor money and whatever revenues came in. And basically there was no separation between the corporation and him. He took personal loans. He took corporate loans, used the corporate loans for personal purchases. Um, and, and there was no formalities observed. There were no shareholder meetings, board meetings, no reports going out. The accounting was non-existent. Um, you know, there was no spreadsheets to say, okay, well, this is, you know, the CEO's personal stuff and this is the corporation expenses. Um, the reason it's very hard to do is because all you really have to do to get past it is to treat the corporation as a separate person or entity so that the corporation enters the loans. The corporation enters the agreements with the talent. The corporation makes the payments. So, like, if you're going to even... Like if you're going to finance the corporation, you don't pay the expenses for the corporation out of your own individual pocket. You put the money in the corporation's bank account and then the corporation writes the check. So it's not, if you're running it as a real business and you're not crazily sloppy, it's a very easy thing to comply with, which is why it's very difficult to overcome. And if you have an LLC, which I believe this entity was an LLC, most states, and I don't know in New Mexico, but most states don't require you to comply with corporate formalities like if you had a corporation, which would mean board meetings, shareholder meetings annually at least. Brian, you mentioned insurance, right? So that's an interesting component of this. We have a lot of uh, folks in the insurance industry who are watching and listening. Um, typically on a small, relatively small independent production like Rust was with a relatively small budget, what kind of insurance are we looking at? And, and maybe explain the different types of insurance that typically is purchased. Um, insurance rate, insurance policies can be very expensive, right? And, you know, have produced yeah. a couple of films myself. I know that you don't want to necessarily buy the, uh, the, the, the most expensive policy. You want to sometimes get the bare minimum. Uh, what do you think was involved here? What are the different types of for, uh, types of insurance? And also did, what about insurance for completion of the film, right? This film is currently stopped. We have heard some discussion about it being, re you know, resuming with Alec Baldwin. Who knows if that'll happen? But talk to us a little bit about the different types of insurance involved here. So in, in most productions, you have your, you know, workers' comp insurance, comprehensive general liability insurance, errors and omission insurance. Some, if they're smart, will get a director's and officer's policy and an employment practices insurance policy. For this incident, it likely was covered under the, the general liability policy, which most of those policies are $1 million per occurrence, $2 million in the aggregate, which means you can't have 
you know, claim if all of your total claims are over two million, they'll only cover up to two million. So um, the errors and omissions is more of uh, you know for like your production, uh, whether you have the rights, if someone sues you for stealing their script or copyright infringement, directors and officers, and uh, you know that's for your directors and officers if they are engaged in fraud or misconduct, they this insurance would cover you know a defense. Um, employment practices, if someone sues for sexual harassment, not it's not usually covered for wage and hour claims. But in, in this case, the, the, the general liability policy is there. Plus, there's usually a deductible or a self-insurance or a self-retention amount that has to be paid. Um, I've seen a lot of people get insurance and think, oh, the deductible is like 10 grand. And then they look, it's 125,000. <laughs> they don't have it. And if they don't pay it, the insurance company doesn't have to like until you pay that, then they don't have to step in. Um, so, and, and then also, it's not like car insurance like most people think, where oh well, if this happens, I'm covered. No, you're covered based on the language of the policy, and like you said, you can go for the Rolls Royce of policies where they cover anything that happens out of this incident, or they'll cover you know. Th- they might not cover an incident with a gun. They, it literally might say we don't cover any firearm incidents. Um, you know, typically terrorist attacks aren't covered and force majeure stuff aren't covered. Um, but there's a lot of things that are excluded from coverage. It, 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 the cheaper you go on the policies and on most small independent films, they go for the cheapest policy that, that they can. And to that point, and I don't want to get too much in the weeds on coverage. Right. But you know, it's a really <laughs> interesting topic. And, um, you know, I, I, I'm interested in your perspective on the relationship between being charged criminally with coverage. We all know, and I represent lots of insurance companies, and, you know, they're great clients, but insurance companies generally, are their first reaction is going to be to deny, right? So I imagine that yeah. when there's, um, when there's I, potential criminal action, their first reaction is going to be denied. That's not covered. I, I know. I, I just dealt with this issue in California unrelated to that, but I found some case law that's in California that's like, yeah, we know – they're charged with a criminal act, but they could also be sued civilly for the same action. Right. So you still have to cover the civil action, even though they're criminally charged because they're different theories of liability. And in California and most states, the duty to defend is broader than the duty of indemnity. But I will tell anybody that wants to get into entertainment law, like no insurance inside and out, because you will be dealing more with insurance issues than with actor agreements. A hundred percent. It's not always the uh, red carpet glitzy things that people think it is, right? I, I would say, and I deal, I'm, I'm in, I have a very weird practice, but I would say like 20% of my practice is just dealing, sending letters to insurance companies and threatening to sue to try to get coverage of defense because they're always trying to figure a way out of that. It's, I won't say every one of them, but, you know, some I've had just say, yeah, it's covered. We got it. But then you still got to kind of watch it and make sure as the case progresses, because they usually do it under a reservation of rights letter. Yeah. So it's really, I, I you know, uh, raise a really interesting point about, you know, some of the clients. And I know you've represented some really high profile uh, clients over the years, you know, everyone from uh, Robinson Cano, Wayne Brady, Howie Mandel, I saw Susan Lucci. I'm wondering your perspective, given your representation over all, all these many years, you know, what effect will it have on talent, on actors? We not we understand that Alec Baldwin has also been charged criminally in his role as a producer, but he's also been charged in his role as an actor. And what are your thoughts on how, you know, this 
these civil actions and criminal actions affect talent going forward, especially on small independent productions, when you really do sometimes rely on, you know, talent coming in and, and, and not being paid a lot uh, in order to get a production done. They're, they're going to be a lot more careful about it and they're going to start putting, and I know for a fact that I, in, in a lot of the agreements I'm have, I'm doing for talent, I'm putting, I'm demanding to pre-approve the insurance, at least, have the opportunity to review the insurance policy and see, and if it's not to my reasonable business satisfaction that the client can pull out of the film, you don't have to worry about that with studio movies, but with, with the smaller independent films, yeah, it, it's a very big concern. Also, like I've had, you know, producers and clients of mine that are producers and independent producers, they're like, well, they want me to personally guarantee the salary. And I was like, yeah, go ahead and do it. I know how much you've made over the past couple of years, and it's your judgment proof. So, like, as someone representing talent, I'm going to look into that. How real, who's actually backing this movie? Who's going to guarantee it? And the most common thing is an escrow for salaries and for any liabilities that you want a certain amount in escrow to protect the client. But a lot of clients, they, they have their pet projects or they're in love with the project, and they kind of are willing to take the risk. Now, let's also be clear, this type of incident on set is is egregious but it, it it's not common it i mean i i think five times i can think of just off the top of my head where this has happened over the last 40 years yeah vic morrow brandon lee uh john eric hexham those all come to mind yeah. as prominent cases but you know all that being said you know if I, I i imagine that again going forward you know you others man it will you'll have to do a little bit more due diligence and digging into the circumstances surrounding a production, because we know now that part of the allegation, both civilly and criminally, um, as the DA stated very clearly, is that this was just a shoddy production. Safety was lax. So I wonder what responsibility, you know, we all have now in looking into the production and determining, you know, if there's things going on, like, you know, 150 rounds of live ammo. I mean, that that imposes, uh, you know, a little bit more perhaps of a duty than there ever was. It's, it's, but it's very difficult to, to assess that when you're signing the agreements. Right. Because, you know, I mean, I, I actually was with a producer client, boots on the ground producer types when the shooting happened. And, you know, we were all at dinner and they were like, why is there live ammo on a set at all? Like they all, and, and one of the guys was an armorer and he was like, you never have live ammo on a set. You, you just, it just doesn't happen in his, in his experience. And he would never allow it. And he has no idea why you'd have to shoot a gun for a film with live ammo ever. Um, I don't know if that's true or not, but, you know, that was what he was saying. And you won't be able to tell what problems there are unless you see, you know, they're trying to film Avengers Endgame on a $5 million budget. Then you will know. But most of the time you won't be able to see it unless you have people who are, you know, they're like the head of this department, someone with zero experience, you know, they, they've never done it before. It's just going to be a complete wreck. I had a client who was on set. He was supposed to be producing this movie, but the, but they weren't putting in enough money to, for COVID protections. And he quit. He's like, I am not doing this movie under these conditions because this violates SAG and the DGA rules on COVID, and I'm not taking. I'm telling my crew, I'm I'm out, and I suggest that they all leave because this is unsafe. Hmm. Brian, what about the fact that, as I mentioned earlier, Matthew Hutchins, who's the widower um, of Helena Hutchins, he settled, like we talked about, the civil suit, and 
as part of that agreement that we that we're aware of, he took an EP executive producer credit on on the film. He also, in the wake of the charges that were filed this week, before that, when the press release was announced, said that he's happy that these criminal charges are being brought. Um, that stands in contrast to what he said earlier in October when he said that he doesn't place any blame for this accident and wants to move forward. Those are two seemingly conflicting statements. And again, what do you make of the fact that uh, the widower is now financially incentivized in the film? Was that purposeful as part of the agreement? And was there any, was there any sort of public relations piece to that as well? Uh, There definitely could have been. There normally is in these types of settlements and he could have been obligated to say something like that. But You can also reconcile the feelings where personally, I'm not going to lay blame. I'm moving on. It was a terrible tragedy, but I need to move on from my family. And then also with the prosecutors coming down, they're trying to, you know, keep not just that film production set, but it's for the future productions so that it doesn't happen again. So I could see that he can reconcile why he's moving on and he's not laying blame but yet he's happy that the authorities are taking action because, you know, for future productions to make sure that they're more careful on, on sets. I mean, we've all been we've all been involved in various jobs or seen corners cut. And, um, you know, I mean, most don't lead to the loss of life, but they can. Um, my father happens to be a, a, a construction safety expert and he gets called in whenever there's a big accident in Easter in the east, northeast and you know it happens unfortunately and people are always trying to cut corners and if the authorities in new mexico are going to take action it, it you know it would behoove producers to uh and and not just producers but the below the line crew and department heads to toe the line a lot more and um look out for each other as well so if you see in one department they're slack you raise it right um, Brian, the, uh, the New Mexico Occupational Safety Bureau assessed a fine in April of 2022 against the production, and they said that there were serious safety violations. In response, the production asserted that uh, basically the law permits producers to delegate crucial uh, functions such as firearm safety to subordinates on the film, as they allegedly did here. Um, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, is that a sound legal argument that the buck doesn't stop with the producers, but that they're allowed to delegate to subordinates? Uh, personally, I think it's a way. Th- no, <laughs> you have to make sure, you know, I can't delegate, you know, drafting a brief to be filed with the Supreme Court to my secretary. I can delegate her faxing for emailing scans of stuff. But, you know, I, I mean, that's you got to make, and, and even then, I always tell this to people, and I've lived by this since I became an attorney. It's my job to make sure the people working for me do their job. Does that mean I have to look over their shoulder every moment? No, but does that mean that I have to have a system in place so that I can say, well, I delegated authority and I routinely walked over and checked and I asked people how everything was going. You know, you have to do something. You can't just say, hey, we delegated it. We're not responsible. There, you know, the unit production manager is still responsible for everything that happens on set. They're responsible for checking in with the with the supervisors, no different than anybody at any office. You know, the, I was always told your secretary forgot to do it is not is not a justifiable reason. 
Brian, last question here on the Sermon Pod. I know that you're not a criminal lawyer, but in the wake of the charges this week, any thoughts on uh, how that plays out? Does uh, Do you think Alec Baldwin is convicted, and do you think he sees it in jail time? I, I don't think he sees jail time. Um, there might be a, most likely a plea agreement. Um, I There were some facts that came out after the announcement of the charges that I was not aware of and never read about before, such as I, I think they're alleging negligence on his part that he skipped out on or didn't pay attention to the firearm safety training that they went through or that they were supposed to go through. And I mean, how many times have you gone to these sexual harassment sensitivity seminars and you see people making jokes and sleeping in the back? I mean, that that I did wasn't aware of. I was surprised when he was charged. But, you know, ultimately, most cases do do end up in plea agreements. And I think that's the likely scenario here and maybe down to a misdemeanor where it's uh, negligence. Um, criminal negligence, whatever there is in New Mexico. Yeah, I think one of the most telling maybe holes in the theory is that if you are alleging that in his role as a producer, he holds some liability, you know, why aren't the other uh, producers charged, right? I mean, Alec Baldwin um, was probably, you know, I mean, listen, in, in any production when an artist is also a producer of the magazine of Alec Baldwin, they're generally not the person ordering the, the, the craft yeah. services and, 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 and you know, uh, supervising everything. So it seems a little strange that they didn't charge the rest of the producers. Yeah, and, and, and I, I said that before to another outlet that the producer credit, you know, there's all sorts of rules for the guild and getting the PGA, but you can get producer credit for making creative contributions and you have no, resp- no responsibility whatsoever for what goes on set. And that's what I thought Alec Baldwin's role as a producer on the film was, is that, I, I read somewhere where it was his kind of pet project and that he made creative contributions, revised the script some, made some contributions on where to shoot it and who to cast in it. And maybe he brought attachments to it, other other cast members. So that person does not have any obligation to ensure safety on an overall set. But what I read is that I think the DA is going after him because of not paying attention during fire safety. Right. He was the one who pulled the trigger, who pulled the gun out when it went off. Um, And, you know, there could be an argument made that he should have checked if it was loaded and not relied on somebody else. I can tell you, being involved with weapons, and I used to go skeet shooting and things like that, you never pick up a a gun without checking whether it's loaded or not. That's just the first instinct you do is, is you check if it's loaded, you pull the clip out, unchamber the round and make sure it's clean. And also when you're at a shooting range, you leave it on the shooting range so that everybody can see that it's empty. And it sounds like he didn't do that. Now, an argument could be made that he was relying on the person who was responsible for it. I don't know what the DA is thinking. And I'll also admit that having represented celebrities in various cases, sometimes there's politics and a DA usually wants to, you know, run for governor or Congress. And having a high-profile case puts your name in the paper more often. I'm cynical, so that might be why. It could be perfectly legitimate. But I can't help but thinking part of me thinks that that might be why, the big target. Very, very interesting insights and observations from Brian Sullivan of Early Sullivan of Los Angeles. Thank you so much for joining us on the Sermopod, Brian. Thanks for having me.
Ideas, strategies, and opinions represented on this podcast are those of the speakers and do not represent the ideas, strategies, and opinions of their employers.